0: Please turn now for our New Testament reading containing the text for this afternoon to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 16, and the text is verse 3. First, the Beatitudes. Hear the word of God. And seeing the multitudes, he that is Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. May God bless that reading from his own holy and infallible Word. Dear congregation of Jesus Christ, Jesus has begun his preaching ministry in Galilee the northern region of israel as he comes to various villages he preaches in their synagogues on the sabbath day It was then the saturday the sixth and last day of the week people from as far and near flocked to hear jesus preach in matthew 4:25 we learn great multitudes followed him from galilee and from decapolis jerusalem judea and beyond the jordan Jesus was the greatest preacher who ever lived, and the people knew it. He preached unlike any of the teachers they had ever heard before. We know this because we're told that when Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount, the people react to what they have heard. This is the way Matthew puts it. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. That's from Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Early in his ministry, Jesus healed all kinds of diseased people in Galilee. And as a result, Jesus' reputation spread internationally. People as far away as Syria heard about the rabbi who performed miraculous cures. How grieved Jesus must have been when he experienced this all. Why might that have been? Well, congregation, Jesus didn't come to earth to be famous. He came to save his people from their sins. And so, as we come closer to the text this afternoon, let's learn from the people who listened to Jesus. There are at least two errors we need to beware of in listening to preaching. The first is that of having a critical spirit. Sometimes a preacher can misspeak, as I just did, and it did occur to me there are seven days in the week, not six. And if we're not careful as listeners, we can focus on the mistake in speaking and forget all the the good biblical things the preacher said. This is something I need to fight against as a listener to sermons as well. I've done it before, losing the benefit of a good sermon by focusing on a single mistake. All this to say, dear ones, we need to be discerning, in the way we listen to preaching. To be sure, we need to test every word that is said by God's word. However, being critical is a sin, and we need God to forgive it. And we need God's grace to fight against it, even during the privileged activity of of listening to sermons. So the first error to be aware of is that of having a critical spirit, and the second is that of having a demanding spirit, a demanding spirit. By that I mean expecting the preacher to talk about your favorite topic and being dissatisfied if he doesn't address it. Perhaps you dislike hearing sermons that deal with your sin. Or you dislike sermons that sound overly positive. Or you dislike sermons that call you to examine yourself. You close your mind and your heart to such sermons when you hear them. Friend, if you are living in this way, you need to know that you are rejecting part. Parts of God's message for you. You don't have to deal with me on this point. Ultimately, you will face God. And he will hold you to account for the way that you responded to his word. And the preaching of his word. I have no reason to to accuse any of you of these two things, dear ones. These are in the manuscript. But if the shoe fits, wear it. How do you respond to preaching? Do you come to evaluate it? To judge it? or to let God judge you and test you through it? Do you come seeking food and drink for your soul, asking God the Holy Spirit to supply your spiritual need through the preaching of his word? Although we don't hear the voice of Jesus, and we don't see Jesus in his physical body, God has given us his holy word. Now we have the word of Jesus designed to reveal the person of Jesus as a revelation of our triune God. It is God's purpose to glorify himself through preaching. If we needed more than the Bible, God would have given us more, wouldn't he? Let the words of Scripture teach you about Jesus and lead you to Jesus. This afternoon, we will consider the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount as it's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3, where we read, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the first beatitude, we learn about the blessedness of spiritual poverty. And we'll learn from this first beatitude by answering some questions about the text. First, what did Jesus mean when he spoke about people who are poor in spirit? Who are these blessed people? And we'll take a while answering this question. In each of the beatitudes, Jesus is not describing a naturally occurring characteristic. We, ne- we need to remember this in hearing this sermon, but also in any further study you make of the Beatitudes. These are not naturally occurring characteristics that Jesus is describing here. To say this another way, by nature, no one is like the people described in the Beatitudes. When we have people, when we find people who have a naturally retiring disposition, they don't put themselves forward, They hold back and let others lead. These are not the kinds of people that Jesus is describing in the text before us. Jesus is not describing people who have a poor opinion of themselves. He's not talking about people who put themselves down in front of others with the hope that others will praise them. This is not poverty of spirit. Jesus is not speaking about those who are physically poor in this passage. This might seem obvious to you, but... It is a point that needs to be emphasized, especially in our day. Starting in the 1960s, Roman Catholic priests in Latin America responded to the corruption in government and the way that the wealthy were exploiting the poor. And they developed a teaching called liberation theology. Here's a description of what liberation theologians believe, quoting from a source that I discovered some years ago. At the heart of liberation theology is the notion of God's preferential commitment to the poor. God is on the side of the poor and thus thus must the church be also. Being on the side of the poor does not mean God saves them on the basis of their economic status. Indeed, most liberation theologians are universalists. They believe that everybody will be saved by Jesus. Preference for the poor means that even though God loves all people, he identifies with the poor, reveals himself to the poor, and sides with the poor in a special way. Above all, it means that in the class struggle, God sides with the poor against every oppressor who would exploit or dehumanize them. It also means that in Scripture, it is in the plight of the poor and their struggle for liberation that God is most clearly revealed. The paradigmatic. Event, The pattern for the way that God works in biblical history for liberation theology is the exodus, as seen both in the oppressed condition of Israel under Egyptian rule and God's activity of deliverance. They also appeal frequently to the ethical teaching of the Old Testament prophets. You remember how the the Old Testament prophets would often speak about injustice that was happening, oppression, wickedness against weak and vulnerable people. And liberation theologians highlight that message. Liberation theologians try to make a mixture of Christianity and Marxism. They believe that instead of working as a redeemer from sin, God is on the side of the poor against the rich, and he will help the weak against the oppression of the powerful. Maybe you say in response, well, what does all that have to do with us as Protestant Reformed Church here in North America? Well, another form of liberation theology and identifying with the poor has influenced the Reformed Church to some degree through a document called the Belhar Confession. The Belhar Confession was written by a Reformed Church in South Africa in response to the sinful practice of apartheid, the separation of people based on their race or skin color. Listen to what the Belhar Confession says about God's attitude toward the poor from Article 4. We believe that God has revealed himself as the one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace among people. That God in a world full of injustice and enmity is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor and the wronged. That God calls the church to follow him in this. For God brings justice to the oppressed and gives bread to the hungry. That God frees the prisoner and restores sight to the blind. That God supports the downtrodden protects the stranger, helps orphans and widows, and blocks the path of the ungodly. That for God, pure and undefiled religion is to visit the orphans and the widows in their suffering. What then are we to make of these statements? It is true that God does care about injustice and oppression, but this does not mean that God is the God of the poor just because they are poor. Even the authors of the Belhar Confession realize that the only way to be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ, as they do say in Article 2. Yes, God does care about the physical needs of his people, so much so that he instructs us to pray for our daily bread before we address our own spiritual needs, as we've recently learned and been reminded of. But God never speaks about physical needs to the exclusion of spiritual needs. In fact, Jesus shows a perfect balance in his ministry. We must not forget that Jesus multiplied bread and fish after a day in which he preached the gospel. That's one such incident. And I was reminded, as I reviewed this material a few hours ago, that there was another time where people were with Jesus two days, if my memory serves, in which he taught them, and then he multiplied food for them two days of spiritual instruction, and then meeting their physical needs. When Jesus told John's disciples to tell him about the work he was doing, he listed all kinds of miracles. And at the end of Matthew 11, verse 5, he said, The poor have the gospel preached to them. Although God cares about the plight of the poor, none of God's people who are physically poor are saved by virtue of their poverty. Whether a person has millions of dollars or no bank account at all is irrelevant as far as his salvation is concerned. God saves the poor not because they are poor, but because he is merciful and because Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners, no matter their income or social status. Jesus wasn't speaking about a natural character trait or about physical poverty, when he spoke about the poor in spirit. So the question remains, it still stands. What did Jesus mean when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? The word Jesus uses for poor in Greek draws a stark picture for us. The word gives the idea of a person who is cringing, drawing back and cowering. But why is he doing that? He does it because he's ashamed. He has not done something to be ashamed of. Rather, he is so poor that he begs others for the food that will keep him alive. Why then is this beggar ashamed? He's ashamed because he knows that he has absolutely nothing. Without the help of others, he will starve. He is as poor, helpless, and pitiful as can be. This man is poor, and he knows it. If we are to gain from this beatitude, This pronouncement of blessing, there is an important step we need to take in the way we think of poverty. Isn't it true that we are among the most prosperous people in the world? In view of the work ethic and the culture that we share, many people with Dutch ancestry, we tend to think that our middle-class, comfortable lives, we tend to think of them as blessed lives. And this is just as true if you have a, a good work ethic and you believe in hard work and, and good work, regardless of what your culture is. So we think of the middle-class lives we lead, the comfortable lives, comparatively speaking, as blessed lives. And conversely, by contrast, isn't it true that we think of the lives of poor people as cursed lives? In our context, we can think about people who have lost their homes and their property, because of drug addiction. They are the poor people who live on the street. And we think of their poverty as a curse, as the result of the sinful choices they have made. To be sure, this isn't true of every single poor person in this city. And it's important not not to stereotype and not to generalize. But it is, it is certainly true of quite a number of them. However, as we transition from physical truth to spiritual truths, Jesus says that the poor people in spirit are not cursed, but blessed. This is a revolutionary statement. We need to see it for that, for what it is that Jesus is saying to us here. I know we know the Beatitudes. We've heard them many, many times, but blessed are the poor in spirit. What then did Jesus mean when he spoke about being poor in spirit? He was referring to an attitude of heart that is foundational to Christian life. Ultimately, being poor in spirit begins with your relationship to God if you are a Christian. To be spiritually poor is to be confronted by the holiness and perfection of God and to realize that God demands sinlessness, perfection, and total devotion to him 24-7. The man, woman, boy, or girl who is spiritually poor realizes that he can't do this. He can't live the way that God commands him to live. She can't save herself. She can't even cooperate with God in order to save herself. The spiritually poor person is like a beggar who has nothing to offer to God. These things are not new to you, dear ones. I'm sure you've heard these truths before in various sermons. Jesus is referring to something more than understanding the teaching of God's holiness and mankind's sinfulness. He's talking about the personal experience of your poverty before God. This is something you know, not because you've heard it before, not because you're expected to to say that you believe it, but you know it because you sense it, you feel it in your soul. It's something like the difference between knowing that there are poor people in this world actually being one of those poor people, a beggar on the street in New Delhi, India, never having a home of your own, only living on the street, dependent on the charity of others in order to live. The difference between knowledge and experience of spiritual poverty is much greater and far more important than that physical analogy I just gave you. Dear ones, if God wills that you should suffer physical poverty, He will bring about benefits for you if you are a Christian. I don't wish physical poverty for any of you. Yet if you would be blessed, if you would be in a most fortunate, happy, beneficial condition, you must know the experience of spiritual poverty. And what is this experience like when God works in your heart? It means that you come to know that you come to God with nothing. Not your church attendance, not your morality, not that you have been faithful in your marriage and worked to provide for your family or cared for your children in the home. These are all good things, to be sure, but they have absolutely no bearing on your salvation. God is not going to go easier on you because you have done these things. God will expect more of you because you have heard his word, the demands of his law, and the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, you know these things. It's a high privilege, to be sure, but it puts you in a dangerous position. If you're yet outside of Christ, if you compare favorably to the people around you, and you take comfort from that, in terms of your standing before God, either you have not learned the lesson of the first beatitude, or you're acting and thinking as if you haven't learned. You have not learned, or you're forgetting, the secret of entrance into the kingdom of God. How can sinners like you and me enter the kingdom of God and stay there? There's only one way. Jesus Christ is the way into the kingdom, but he will be the way for those who come as spiritual beggars. What does that mean? It means that we don't come to God with action, with any of our actions. We don't think that God is so impressed with our church attendance, our prayers, our Bible reading, our feelings, our conviction of sin, our good resolutions to do better in the future. None of that stuff will save you if you're trusting in it. And compared to the perfection, the righteousness, the beauty of Christ, it is worthless garbage and it's an offense to God. Our natural hearts are so devious, congregation. If we analyze ourselves, it is so easy to put our trust in feelings of spiritual poverty. Isn't it true true that we can be tempted to say, God will accept me because I feel my neediness. The devil can pervert reformed theology and biblical truth, just as he can ruin anything that is good. No one was ever saved by his or her feelings. The only way to be saved is by Jesus Christ and him alone. Feelings and experiences are byproducts of God's work of salvation, but they are only helpful if they end exclusively in Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example that I I hope will make this clearer and drive it home. Imagine that you have a loved one who had a disease That would take his life, unless he took some medicine. And imagine this is a time and a place where the medicine is being prepared. It's not just sold in a package, but it's actually prepared at the drugstore. And you're there, and the pharmacist is making this special medicine. And he needs to skim off and discard some foam from a chemical solution as part of this process. Would you be interested in that foam that he threw away? Of course not. Rather... Wouldn't you give your attention to the medicine that he was making? And the instant that it was ready and you knew what to do with it, you would pay, you would take it, and you would rush home to your suffering loved one. Congregation, the devil wants you to focus on anything else except Jesus Christ. If there is anything that he can possibly distract you with, he will try to use it. Do you take pride in your poverty of spirit? If you think you have poverty of spirit, you will know that the devil will tempt you to be proud about how religious you are. There are so many ways that poverty of spirit can be abused, twisted, and ruined. How we need God to preserve us and to help us, even when we deal with something that seems as pure as spiritual poverty. Why are those who are spiritually poor so blessed? What makes the spiritually poor such privileged people? Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the English follows the Greek, in exact word order here. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. It is theirs and no one else's. That's the point being emphasized by the language here. These spiritual beggars, these people who have nothing to offer to God, these ones who need the salvation that God gives, These people are possessors of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't say that they are permitted to look into the kingdom from a distance. He doesn't say that they may hope to enter the kingdom for a limited time, sometime in the distant future. Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is theirs as a gift. Jesus Christ has given them the right to become the children of God. He has done everything so that spiritually poor ones have a right to the kingdom of heaven. And where does this journey to eternal blessedness begin? It begins in spiritual poverty, in contrition, that is in coming to God with a broken heart, sorrowing for your sin, seeking righteousness with him, and receiving everything from him for Jesus' sake. Perhaps some of you are confused by this all. Perhaps you think, does God really want to give us these things? Does he really want to do anything for people like us who don't deserve anything from him? If that is a worry that burdens you, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 12:32. Luke 12:32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is a marvelous, marvelous verse. It's among my favorites. God the Father is delighted to welcome his people into heaven. Through the saving work of Jesus Christ, believer, you have a right to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours. God the Father is delighted that you should have it. Jesus Christ has prayed that you should receive it. And the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that you will receive it. Since the kingdom is eternal, it will be yours forever and ever. No one can take it from you. Not your sin, for it will be cleansed and forgotten. Not death, for you will never die. Not the devil, devil, for he will be cast into eternal hell forever. If you are poor in spirit and rich in Jesus, the kingdom is yours. Heaven is as surely yours as if your soul and body were there now. What should this result in for such people? It should result in thankfulness if you are a Christian, shouldn't it? Surely the thought of what God has saved you from and what he has saved you to ought to kindle thankfulness, praise, and love in your souls, fellow believers. Indeed, every day ought to be a day of thanksgiving for us, for all who are in Christ. How can it not be so? For God saved us who were born in sin and deserving of his everlasting anger and punishment in hell. He chose to love us and to save us while we were yet sinners. He worked so that we would, we realized we had nothing to offer to him. As a result, we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and so we are being saved. Now, instead of being paupers with nothing to our name, we are children of the King with an unshakable claim to heaven. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Think about this, Christian. Think about this until your heart warms and you praise God fervently and you thank him always. Since God first made us poor in spirit and then saved us who were were poor in spirit, this should impact how we relate to fellow believers. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. There is no place and no reason to promote ourselves at the expense of others. We are all beggars who receive salvation as a gift. Selfishness, self-promotion, any feelings of superiority that we might be tempted to have are contrary to the attitude of someone who is poor in spirit. Has God gifted me in a particular area? I'll thank him for it. I didn't deserve it, yet he graciously blessed me. And he's given me that gift to build up the body of Christ, to help my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Has God gifted someone else in an area that I have not been gifted in? I'll seek to rejoice in that other person's gift. I'll be glad that my brother or sister can serve in a particular way that I can't. And I'll submit to the sovereign hand of God who gifts whom he wills as he wills. Lastly, we live in a world of physical wealth and spiritual poverty. Physical poverty seems so much easier to spot. Those of you who have traveled to other countries or helped needy people in this country know what I'm talking about. Physical poverty is a problem and God has given us the calling and the opportunity to help those who are physically poor in ways that are helpful to them, that will increase self-sufficiency if that can possibly be done. But spiritual poverty is so much more widespread and so much more serious also in our land. There are people who have f- far more property than they need, who have absolutely Nothing, spiritually. Our society is drowning in stuff in the quest to fill a God-shaped hole in the souls of so many people. Christians, if we were physical beggars, and someone told us where we could get a daily supply of food for free, we would go to that place, wouldn't we? If the manager of that supply of food told us to spread the word to other beggars, We would tell them, wouldn't we? And so this brings us to the final question. Will you, will I, tell the spiritually poor ones of never-ending wealth and spiritual life in Jesus Christ? Who will you talk to? Who will I talk to? Amen.